0: Hello and welcome to Share Your Secrets, a podcast that celebrates the diversity of food, art and community. We're Bounce Back Food CIC, a community cookery school that has been fighting food poverty in Greater Manchester, Cheshire and North Wales since 2014. Earlier this year we started working on our second fundraising recipe book, Secret Dishes from Around the World Too. It has exciting recipes from 20 countries and 20 original pieces of art by 20 local artists. In each episode, you'll find out about two of the 20 countries that will feature in the book. We'll talk food, art and community with the artists involved, get insights from guests in the featured countries and keep you up to date with what the Bounce Back team have been up to. I'm your host, Miriam Rendell. I hope you enjoy listening. So, this week on Share Your Secrets, I'll be talking to Christian Turner, a Cheshire-based artist. He was assigned the Poland section of secret dishes from around the world too. I'll also be talking to Hira Hussain, the founder of Chen, who grew up in Pakistan. But before we hear from them, I caught up with Duncan to find out what Bounce Back had been up to this half term.
1: So over the last few years, we've often gone into schools during half terms and the holiday time and cooked uh, hot, nutritious meals for kids that usually get a free school meal. Um, This half term... With COVID, we're doing things a little bit differently. We've um, run one of our online cook-alongs specifically for young people uh, in Greater Manchester. And it was a wonderful way to provide an activity, to teach some young people some fantastic healthy recipes and bring people together over half term.
0: And I believe you've now got a copy of Secret Dishes from Around the World too in your hand.
1: Yes, very exciting. So the test copies have arrived and... They just look stunning. So the food photography, the art from all the different artists who contributed, the feel of the book. It's a beautiful um, hardback first edition book. It's just amazing to see the whole thing come together. Um, so much work has gone into this with all of the artists, um, our team and, you know, Josh doing the food photography. It's a beautiful, beautiful cookbook um, and just delighted with
0: with how they look. Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Now normally you'd be preparing for a launch for book one you are at the Royal Exchange you had a big event to launch the first cookery book. Obviously things are a bit different this year with Covid-19 so what have you chosen to do for the launch of book two?
1: Yeah things are a lot different to what we expected so we hoped to get all the artists back together so everyone from Greater Manchester, Cheshire and North Wales in the way that we did earlier in the year to set the brief and to introduce everyone but clearly we've had to adapt our plans so Uh, We've decided to run a book launch cook-along instead on the evening of Friday the 6th of November. So that evening we've invited all of the artists who participated on the book. Um, We also made some tickets available via Eventbrite as well. And the plan is to do a couple of things on Instagram Live, uh, possibly YouTube as well. So that evening, if you're free, do check out our social media. Um, Hopefully you'll be able to watch some of the session or take part in some way and, and see copies of the books as we launch secret dishes from around the world too.
0: Amazing. Your first experience of Instagram Live. I hope as many people listening can join as possible.
1: Yeah, it should be great. And just nice to reunite everyone that's worked on the book since we started this project
0: back in January. Thanks, Duncan. We'll have a final update next week. Christian Turner is a Cheshire-based artist who primarily works with oil paints. I started by talking to him about his early interest in art
2: my interest in art's been a lifelong thing you know where i think it's one of these um, things where if you ask a different group of children at different ages who hears into drawing who likes art who is an artist and i think you'll find that in a sort of a nursery or preschool group most of all put their hands up yeah i like drawing i'm dead good at drawing and as you go you move on year on year the number of people who put their hand up kind of starts to diminish i suppose that most people do have that kind of creative output or this this want to create something artistic in some way or another it's just uh, i think with a lot of people it starts to diminish as they get older uh, which is which is a real shame but um it's something i stuck at all the way through education and you keep at it and uh, you do eventually get what you want and you know, where you want to go it's something i've always been interested in Family-wise, I come from a quite a scientific background. Dad's a chemical engineer and mum has a degree in biochemistry, so it's, it's, it's quite a scientific background. So I felt like there was some pressure on me to pursue a scientific vocation, but um, I found that particularly as I got into A-levels, my interest in it Did wane quite a bit. But I think if you look at some aspects of my work, I've tried to incorporate mathematical ideas into some pictures that I've done.
0: Yeah, you said that you're interested in geometry and bringing that mathematical side into artwork. How does that work?
2: Uh, Well, what I've done for the most part is taken influence from Arabic patterns that you'd find on walls, on floors, and thought, how does that translate or what does that look like to me? I was thinking primarily of a turtle. I think I noticed on a turtle's shell there there was this kind of distinct pattern that appeared across all turtles where a leopard's spots and or a zebra's stripes would vary from animal to animal and be totally unique. There was this defined pattern on a turtle's back, and I thought, well what if i could do something else with that what if if there's some kind of consistency there what if i was to try something a bit more um, mathematically precise i wasn't worried about how it would turn out it was just figuratively throwing art at the wall and seeing what sticks yeah you know, i tried one pattern for the shell it looked quite nice I'd try one for its fins and its face something for the background and It took an awful long time, I think. In terms of the painting itself, it took more about at least twice as long as an ordinary painting. And uh, an awful lot more planning beforehand, trying different patterns, giving them a little tweak just to see what would happen. Again, it was just seeing how it would turn out. And I've done a couple of them. I think I've done three geometric style paintings before now. I feel like there's kind of a mixed reaction to them. I think uh, some people, perhaps the Marmite of paintings.
0: You mentioned that marine life and bird life are a couple of your favourite subjects to paint.
2: Uh, marine life in particular, I don't mind saying. It's something that I've always been interested in, where a lot of children had Spongebob, or Nickelodeon or the Disney Channel. <laughs> I did have those, but uh, I know that there was a lot of time committed to adult television in the evening as well, Aspenborough documentaries. Yeah. So I saw a fair lot of natural world stuff, and particularly, um, I think the Blue Planet came out when I was about six or seven and that just uh, that hit hard and it was uh, amazingly interesting and yeah since then i'm actually i'm actually a, a member of the british sub aqua club so i'd have gone scuba diving a few times so. wow i think the last big dive we went on we went up to oban we did a dive on a, on a shipwreck there, the, uh, the breeder. That, that interest in underwater or, you know, the marine life and what goes on in the ocean, I think fueled that desire to go scuba diving as well as replicating what I'd seen and what I want to see on canvas.
0: Absolutely. And Blue Planet is such a fantastic series, isn't it? It's like this whole other alien world. Is there anything in particular that you've enjoyed painting from watching documentaries like Attenborough?
2: My absolute favourite projects, and I think the ones, and that's probably reflected in the reception that they've received, was the bait balls, where they'd have these large uh, schools of fish uh, discovered by um, different species of uh, other animal like whale and dolphin and gannet. And they they think, well, I'll follow the dolphin, I'll follow the whale, and they all converge on this giant ball of fish and uh, uh, proceed to go absolutely bananas. I think those are the projects I've had the most fun with.
0: Mm. What kind of things did you see when you were diving on the shipwreck in Oban?
2: Well say it was a big dive because it was in the ocean it was on a on a large ship it was a popular dive site in terms of life there's an awful lot of stuff that grows on the ship we saw several anemones uh visibility was quite good sometimes you know you can't see your hand in front of your face but um we could see a bit further we saw some fish and it's that classic fishing analogy you know i saw a fish it must have been this big i couldn't tell you entirely what they were i, I, I doubt they were salmon but they must have been a, a yard long a lot of the dives we have done, they have favoured shipwrecks or it's been a training exercise. So it's ended up being in a quarry where fish are less abundant. But um, first dive I ever did was up at Cape and Ray. They, uh, they did have fish there and it was, I think they were like char. And it was this enter a new world moment because, you know, first thing I did when I entered the water is these fish went straight across my face and they, they were close enough that you could, so I did, you reach out and touch them. It's not a cheap hobby, but um, I'd uh, wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone who wants to give it a go.
0: Now, as part of the podcast, we're going to reveal which country you were assigned to paint.
2: Well, I've been working on the country Poland and the title page for that list of recipes in the book.
0: So when you got your envelope and you read Poland, Mm. what was your first thought?
2: Well, I was actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, I wasn't expecting Poland Um, so I think my first instinct was to actually start a conversation with the first Polish person I bumped into to see if they would be able to share some time with me about their country.
0: Did you manage to have a chat with someone?
2: It was quite um, providential almost. I was at work, I walk in and there was a couple of gents doing some work in our office and uh, I found out one of them was from Poland so I thought I'll uh, see if he's uh, free for a couple of words over five minutes.
0: So when you're about to start your artwork, you've just mentioned by speaking to someone who's Polish, Mm -hmm. what other kind of research do you do? Because having seen your artwork, it is filled with Polish references. Mm -hmm. First of all, we've got the Wawel Castle in Mm -hmm. Warsaw. What made you choose that?
2: Well, I was uh, actually speaking to his chap named Marcin. It was actually the first thing he mentioned was, well, we have this wonderful castle in uh, in Krakow. And I thought, right, if it's the first thing you've mentioned, then it's, it's the first thing in your mind that you associate with your homeland. I think the important thing I was trying to do was if someone from Poland would see this painting and identify with it or relate to it and say, hey, they're talking about my home there and perhaps perceive it in a positive way. I think I'm trying to tip my hat to Poland in a few ways there.
0: And that is so clear in the artwork because we've also got Chopin.
2: Yeah, Friedrich Chopin, Polish uh, Polish composer who actually spent a lot of his time living in France, but he is uh, definitely Polish. I think he was from uh, Warsaw
0: Tell me about some of the food I can see in your artwork. Is it pierogi? They're dumplings?
2: There are lots of different flavours of pierogi I've found. You can have it savoury or sweet and uh, love to try either. Um, And it's uh, not something I've bumped into very often but uh, there is a good deal of pierogi there and uh, I think perhaps just keeping it all parceled up like that allows you to imagine what kind of pierogi it is. It could be mushrooms, it could be strawberries, it could be little bits of minced meat. That's uh, accompanied by some uh, borscht right. which was a um, beetroot soup. But again, sounds, uh, sounds very appetising.
0: And you featured a plane in the artwork. Is that a hurricane or a spitfire?
2: It's quite difficult to make the distinction being the size that it is but I've tried to to go for a hawker hurricane.
0: And is that from Squadron 303?
2: That's uh, 303 Squadron, yes. I think I, uh, mentioned, I mentioned that in a comment on my uh, Facebook page. And uh, 303 Squadron was a Polish flying corps or was a Polish unit in the RAF. Perhaps it's my way of tipping my hat to Poland's history because what Poland is now has almost been completely defined by what happened in the Second World War. If you know some aspects about um, Polish history, and in particular in the Second World War, it's very little of it is, is good news. So I was trying to do something that acknowledges their efforts and their hardship.
0: And you're making reference to the Battle of Britain? particularly when Polish fighter planes were fighting on behalf of the United Kingdom.
2: Yes, there were quite a lot of Polish pilots in the uh, in the RAF and uh, I say a lot of them did contribute towards the Battle of Britain. Like I could say it's not really a, a happy history at all for them. it's it's difficult to try and put something to paper and and make it something that you can say that is good and we're proud of it and I think the RAF, and the big steps and the big movements they took in the Battle of Britain were, well, I think, perhaps as as a British national, one of the things that I can say, I, I can tilt my hat to about them.
0: Absolutely. So these ideas that you've joined together in your artwork, how about the actual making of it? You use oil paints, is that right?
2: Mm, mostly working in oil. I didn't use oil for the first time until after I'd finished doing my A-levels at school, had a bit of trial and error. One time I tried clearing my palette using water and ended up just painting my hand blue. (laughs) But yeah, after working out the kinks, I found that uh, working oil was something that I enjoy more than most other media. I've been back to watercolours before now, and I, I don't know whether it's because I was used to working in oils. It just felt difficult. It felt uh, unintuitive. I feel like I can do more as a painter if I stick to oils.
0: So with this particular oil painting, was it your first attempt? Did you build it up? How do you go about making a piece like this?
2: Well, naturally you always defer to your uh, sketchbook when working on anything preliminary. One of the things I found when I left school was... I just threw my hands up in the air and said, thank goodness, I don't have to use a sketchbook anymore. And then about a year later, I went back to the sketchbook and thought, this is actually so much better. I can actually (laughs) plan something out. You know, things are less likely to go wrong on the canvas. So the sketchbook is the place where, well, all your ideas are there, but only a fraction of them are any good. The final pieces are the ones that you think, well, that's something I thought could be developed further.
0: And the intricacies of that building, I mean... Mm. How long did that take you? Uh,
2: Not that long, actually. It's quite easy to find reference images online. Then you sort of take reference point as to where things should go on the canvas, um, scale up, measure, lines, proportion. I'd say the hardest part is mapping it onto the canvas. Once it's all there, it's it's not too difficult to fill in the blanks and create depth and shading. Once you've got the uh, framework down, it almost paints itself. (laughs)
0: says an artist it's absolutely stunning it really is and the sky as well it's a beautiful red color why was that your choice
2: the sky I think there's there's a dual meaning in this one if you look it's sort of white on top white, overcast, cloudy, and then red underneath, which matches the colours of the Polish flag. Clever. And uh, second of all, again, to, I think it's another World War II reference, perhaps a more subtle one, because Poland was invaded by Germany in 1939. Uh, Germany pushed through to Russia, and then not too long after that, Russia pushed Germany back and counter-invaded Poland. So Poland was invaded at least twice in about five years uh, they had conflicts going across the whole nation i believe by the time the war was over their capital had almost completely been demolished and i think the soviets were an occupying force for about half a century afterwards so uh, because there's a red haze it's this kind of a, a suggestion that perhaps at the at one time the land was on fire
0: It's really interesting to hear you talk about your process and the direction you decided to take with the artwork. How did you hear about Bounce Back?
2: I was working at a studio at the time at the art room in Sandbatch and what with uh, the art room and Bounce Back Food having mutual charitable aid I think Duncan got in touch with them about doing a cookery course in Sandbatch. Now I knew about it from people in the art room but I wasn't on that course at the time. What did happen not too long after that though, my partner won a competition online in order to attend a bounce back food course that was uh, happening in Nutsford. It was there that um, I met Duncan properly for the first time and it was there that we made recipes based on national dishes. I I very much enjoyed the experience because I got to eat something at the end of it.
0: And you said one of the cookery courses that you've done with Bounce Back, the country, was Poland.
2: Yeah, I feel like it was a happy coincidence that I um, did a Polish dish on uh, that one. And I think the dish that I did, the fish stew, I think Duncan said that that one's featuring in the book.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that course.
2: The thing that stuck with me most with that was the fish stew, because uh, I had the satisfaction of skinning the bass myself.
0: No way. Is that something mm. you've done before?
2: Uh, That was the first time I'd successfully skinned a fish. I'm open to trying new things, particularly with food. Lifelong food lover.
0: Do you enjoy cooking?
2: Since moving out, I have found that there's uh, a lot of joy to be had in cooking, and that's been amplified even more by lockdown, is having that extra time to put a bit of joy and love into a meal. I I think it makes it more satisfying as well.
0: So what's next for you?
2: Uh, What is next? I have applied to go to university to study a bit of fine art because that's something I missed. Meanwhile, I am working on a side note with DSH Cables, who I believe were one of the uh, corporate sponsors for the production of the book. So I know that my employer is supportive of my creative endeavours.
0: Who would you advise to buy the book?
2: As someone who enjoys cooking, it might be something to help diversify their food menu. Anyone who's willing to try something new... um, Anyone who's a good book collector will look great on your bookshelf.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Christian. It's been a real pleasure to hear about your process and find out a little bit more about what you enjoy painting.
2: Oh, very welcome. Glad to talk.
0: If you want to see more of Christian's artwork, you can go to his webpage at www.christianturnerart.com or you can find him on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Christian Earlier this year at Bounce Back Food... We ran our annual social enterprise internship. The programme ran remotely, which enabled 20 young people from across the UK to join our team. Everyone was assigned one of the 20 countries that features in the book. Here's Caitlin with some fun facts about Poland. Poland's national dish is pierogi, which are Polish dumplings. They can be served savoury or sweet using
1: fillings such as meat, sauerkraut, cottage cheese and fruit. A mermaid with sword and shield is Warsaw's emblem. Legend has it that this mermaid once led a lost prince to the site of Warsaw and ordered him to found the capital city. A bronze sculpture of the mermaid now stands in the Old
0: Town Marketplace. Now let's hear from Phoebe to find out more about Pakistan. Did you know that during Ramadan most Muslims actually gain weight despite fasting from sunrise to sunset? This is because of the incredible food on offer for the meal where they break their fast. This includes dates, soups, juices, fresh vegetables and sweets. Did you know that Pakistan have experienced a 250% increase in literacy rates over the last five years? This growth is the largest of any country to date. Thanks to our interns for sharing those facts. Holly Gorn is a self-taught illustrator who works mainly in acrylic, watercolour and digital illustration. She draws inspiration from botanical sketches and religious iconography, though often she incorporates her love of food and cooking into her work. For more information about Holly's work, check out the episode notes on Bounce Back Foods' blog. Hera Hussain is the founder of CHEN, a non-profit organisation with a global volunteer network which addresses gender-based violence by creating intersectional survivor-led resources on the web. Hera grew up in Pakistan, and when she moved to Manchester, she shared the same office space as Bounce Back Food.
3: Yes, I've been, well, I moved to Manchester, I think, three years ago, or two and a half years ago. It's hard to tell. <laughs> it feels longer. But so yes, I when I moved, uh, Federation was just starting. So I was one of the first residents to do that. Uh, but Chen started seven years ago. So it, did, it really didn't start in the, from the Federation. But um, a lot of exciting things have happened uh, in those last three years.
0: Now tell me, whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Lahore, Pakistan. Oh, fantastic. And how many years of your life
3: were you there? So I was born in Glasgow in Scotland and then my parents moved back to Pakistan. Uh, in the middle, we went to Saudi Arabia for a few years and then we moved to Pakistan. My father's a doctor and he got a job there and then we moved back to Pakistan. So I mm. think I was there from the ages of five or six until 18 when I came to the UK, back to
0: Glasgow for university. What would you say your lasting memory of growing up in Pakistan was?
3: Family just being around lots of warm, loving people. And yeah, there's just such rich culture and heritage in in Pakistan that I, when I close my eyes, or I, you know, I think about my cousins coming over for summer holidays, everybody playing, going to different like houses of different elders, you know, getting like love from everyone. And Yeah, it's all around that or like having really early morning breakfast after nights out or ordering, you know, like food or going to street food markets, uh, just, you know, those kind of things. It's uh, very, very fond.
0: Oh, your description is really bringing it to life in my mind. Tell me a little bit more about the food in Pakistan, the kind of food that brings people together.
3: Pakistan is a country, you know, it's so varied. People often think it's uh, a homogenous sort of country, and it's not. You know, it was created in 1947. It has more than 100 languages are spoken. There are multiple cultures and ethnicities, just different ethnic groups. So that means we have a very amazing melting pot of cuisines. So in the west of Pakistan, you'll find, you know, Baloch or Pashtun uh, cuisine, which is, you know, influences coming from Persia and in Afghanistan. In the east of Pakistan, you have, you know, Punjab, Punjabi cuisine. You know, in Sindh, you have Sindhi cuisine. And then a mix of people who migrated uh, from India also brought over at the time of partition their food. So, you know. It's, it's it's a lot of things. I think the things, if I had to say, was like one or two things that w- would probably be enjoyed across all parts of Pakistan. I would say uh, tea. Like tea is a big thing. Again, different parts of Pakistan enjoy tea different ways. But having the accompaniments mm. with tea... So if it's raining, everyone gets, especially in the hotter parts of the country, we all uh, drink tea uh, Mm. because the temperature cools down. And it's such an exciting thing. The rain is just (laughs) so romantic and just, you know, it represents all good things. So people have pakoras together, samosa and uh, jalebi which is sweet and in other parts of the country if you go north where it is usually cold <laughs> they'll have warm tea uh, with or without milk and then they'll have lots of nuts with it or like cake so um yeah it's just uh, I think that's a uh, probably something that we all enjoy and then there's lots of different kinds of like you know flatbreads different kinds of breads I think makes mm. kind of sticks into my head uh You have parathas. You have different kinds of rotis. You have stuffed parathas and naans and puris, which are deep fried, like rotis. Yeah, lots of things.
0: What would you say is the national dish of Pakistan if you had to choose
3: one? Oh, it's so contentious. (laughs) It's very contentious. There's a fight raging on in Pakistan about this all the time in pop culture. Yeah. It's uh, it's biryani versus palau. So, biryani is, yeah, it's food that everyone enjoys spicy, like, you know, mm. rice layered with different kinds of meats and vegetables, depending on which kind of, and, you know, there are different recipes for it. And uh, palau is uh, less spicy, more mild flavored, but, you know, it's cooked within, like, vegetable or like meat broth yeah and topped with caramelized onions or just onions and butter yeah so I would say either of those two would be like my picks for like the national dish because uh yeah there's a biryani camp and then there's a palau camp I'm in both camps
0: (laughs) a safe place to be (laughs) what about your favorite recipe that you enjoy making something that you make that makes you feel like you're at home in Pakistan I make chicken karahi
3: a lot uh which is my quick thing i follow the recipe of my aunt it's so simple and it's so quick to make it's done within like 25 minutes so on an average week i think i probably make karahi the most because you know if you've got things going on and you just want something quick or the other thing that i uh, really enjoy which takes me back to pakistan and i don't make it enough is kashmiri chai which is pink tea it's uh, drunk in the north of pakistan you know as the name says in in kashmir so it's you brew the leaves for hours and it's very sweet it's also called pink tea because it looks baby pink because that's the color that comes out and you top it up with nuts and uh, yeah it's just it's so amazing to have it in a winter so i usually make it a lot in winter but it's something so decadent that you know it's not something you make every day uh, if you're, unless you're Kashmiri and that's something you, you know, or from the north of Pakistan and that's just something you drink every day. Yeah. So that reminds me as something that I'm, mean, you know, really the smell of it, the look of it just really takes me back to Pakistan and cold nights in Pakistan, weddings
0: and celebrations. Tell me a little bit about a Pakistani wedding. What kind of things would be traditional?
3: Well, We have so many events. So uh, a typical wedding would go over five to seven days. Uh, there would be like, you know, maybe three or four uh, events, depending on what family, what you know, part of the country. And uh, food waste is actually such a big problem in Pakistan that it's one of the areas where the government has done quite a lot of work. So we've gone through stages of one dish policies where you can only have one main dish. Because in a country where so many people go hungry, you know, the amount of food waste that is generated by the wedding industry, it's crazy or sometimes you know there were two dish policies and they're very strict about it so uh, the kind of food that is traditional is korma which is very different to the way people in the uk think korma is korma the way it's made here is actually not accurate at all i've not had proper korma unless i'm going to a pakistani caterer even the restaurants here don't make it properly it's also there are different kinds of kormas there are different kinds of kormas it makes sense you know uh People who's cooking it will bring their own flavor. But a traditional Pakistani wedding korma, it is very dark in color. It's not almondy color. It will have like nuts in it. So that's why it's kind of rich. Yeah. But if you looked at it, you would just think you're looking at a very diluted form of karahi. That's what it looks like. So it's spicy, but it's got like some nutty flavors in it. Uh, yeah, that is a traditional Pakistani food for wedding. And the other thing is gulab jamun, which is the sweet, like, fried dough with syrup and pistachios and uh, orange blossom and rose water and cardamom and you get it here everywhere in the UK so if you want to see what it tastes like you can just go to any Pakistani shop or restaurant uh, or Indian shop and restaurant and get it.
0: Have you found some local places in Manchester that do good Pakistani food?
3: Yes, that was the first thing when I moved to Manchester, I was like, I need to find proper desi spots. So the curry mile is is great. You've got lots of choices there. I would say, however, as a Pakistani, I would say something controversial, which is there are lots of places that are not very good. So so I had to test them. And a lot of my non-Pakistani friends like the places that I would never go and eat in. Yeah. So So I would say my Lahore is like my go-to Okay. It's just so good. Um, the only thing that I feel like they don't do that well is biryani and palau. So I have to give them a zero for that. But everything else is great. And also love Dishoom. Dishoom does good North Indian food. Yeah. So Dishoom is great. When it opened in Manchester, I was so happy. I felt like my life, like quality of life had increased by at least 40%. <laughs> oh,
0: that's brilliant.
3: Oh, sorry. One more thing. On Curry Mile, there are lots of sweet shops. So there's Nirala, there's Zambala, there's Sanam. So there are a few of those. There's uh, Sanam is also in Stratford. So these are the good places to get gulab jamun, uh, pakoras, samosas,
0: uh, biscuits, um, those kind of things. Oh, these are top tips for the next time that I'm in Manchester. <laughs> You mentioned about your auntie's curry. Are there any other traditional recipes that were passed down in your family?
3: Yeah, I wanted to discuss something with you because my grandmother, on my mother's side of the family, it's a huge family. So my grandmother had, uh, there were 10 siblings. Mm. And so nine sisters, one brother, and one of her sisters actually passed away two days ago. And I wanted to talk about one of the recipes that, you know, I remember as a child going to, like, her house and having, and that was a palau. So that palau at her house was always so different because her husband, you know, doesn't eat a lot of spice So in their house, they just didn't have enough spicy food. And I was used to eating spicy food, but I used to love their palau, which was such a simple dish. They only use, I think, four ingredients in it. So even simpler form of palau, just like, you know, meat broth um, and then the dry masala that you usually use. So, you know, cardamom, cloves, fennel seeds, cumin. And, you know, you grind them up and Mm -hmm. uh, onion, fried onion. And yeah. So it's just like a made in butter. It's just it was just so good, so simple, but just so so good. So yeah, when I was talking to you, I was just thinking about her and thinking about like you know having that food as a child. Every we would go to her house every two weeks because
0: um, you know we were very close to her. Oh, what a beautiful tribute to mention her. Thank you for talking about her today. That's really special. I wanted to talk to you about community spirit, about holiday time, or about like you mentioned when your cousins came over in the summer. What is it that brings communities together in Pakistan? Food, weddings, deaths, (laughs) national like celebration events,
3: uh, births, birthdays are a big deal. Yeah, loads of cultural celebrations. Mm -hmm. And people love food, for sure. It is a food loving nation. And if you Watch any food programs, bloggers on YouTube you would have seen in an episode about Pakistan, so you'll know that it is definitely a foodie country. Um, One of the things that I had to get used to when I came to the UK was the fact that everyone orders for themselves when you go to a restaurant, right? Whereas in Pakistan, usually people order for the table, and then the food comes for the table, and then you take what you want for your plate. And so everyone gets to share everything.
0: Great. I love that kind of sharing aspect. We
3: also, interestingly, don't have starters and desserts. So that it all comes together. Desserts sometimes would come afterwards, but usually like, you have everything on the table at the same. They just bring it in as it cooks or they bring it all together. Well, why not?
0: <laughs> exactly. So you get to decide which one you want to eat first. I mean, I'm a big fan of pudding. I'd love that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about art in Pakistan. What would you describe as Pakistani art? It's hard to pinpoint a particular type
3: because again Pakistan is a very like diverse country. Mm-hmm. There's actually a very beautiful diagram that one of the fashion houses in Pakistan did about art of Pakistan and it represents typical patterns and art styles from different provinces and different like areas. So you have like embroidery is a is big block printing. First thing that comes to mind is fabric. Um uh, mm-hmm. So block printing and embroideries, colors, like very colorful. If we talk about other kinds of art, I would think of like geometric, like there's a whole architecture, paintings, all of that has geometric design, which is kind of a a combination of like indo persian influences, Mm -hmm. because that's what the art in that uh, region looks like. And recently, there's been an explosion of pop art, of like marrying traditional things like, you know, truck art, which is sort of unique to Pakistan and uh, marrying that with some of the like modern influences like you know imposing them on furniture so it's very colorful very vibrant
0: I want to go back to where you were talking about the fabric because Holly Gorn our artist who designed for Pakistan she took inspiration from adruk block painted shawls or material traditional to the Sindh province in Pakistan are you aware of those?
3: Yes, Ajrak. I grew up uh, wearing Ajrak prints. I really, really loved them. In fact, when I was uh, designing the website for uh, Chen Pakistan, one of the patterns I used as inspiration for like empowerment and like sort of you know making people feel at home was Ajrak. So even on the website, we used that. It comes in different colors. Usually, there's a lot of silver in it. So silver, blue, maroon. Sometimes there's uh Purple and silver, but like blue and maroon is probably the most common. Black, blue, and maroon, um, like combination for a jerk. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Jen.
0: Firstly, what did you study in the UK?
3: I studied psychology and economics at the University of Glasgow, but I got involved into the world of like social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship in general and tech, and that's really what led me down the path. Two years after I graduated. To start Chen,
0: and what gave you the idea to set up Chen? Um, I believe there was a couple of friends that you were helping out. Yes, I helped two friends very close to me get out of abusive
3: marriages, one in Pakistan and one in the UK. Uh, but who was a migrant, and I realised that you know, as a young person who turns to the web for answers, for community support, inspiration, information. It just wasn't, the landscape, the online landscape wasn't supportive to survivors of gender-based violence, neither in the UK, neither in Pakistan. And I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to, once my friends were settled and they were safe, I wanted to take all the information I had gathered in the process of helping them and put them online for everyone. Uh, Because, you know, the web is such a beautiful tool for us to, you know, organize, to get help. And it was a shame that at that time it was either lacking of information or the information was very patriarchal.
0: Can you tell me about the name of Chen? Where did that come from?
3: Yes, so Chen is an Urdu and Hindi word and it means peace of mind or serenity and I used it... I chose chen as the word because when i helped one of my friends um get out of the abusive marriage she was staying with me and the first night she stayed with me we had spent the day kind of moving her stuff out of her abusive husband's house and while he was away at work and we did all that stuff and i remember making her a cup of tea and we were sitting down and i asked her you know how do you feel and she said now i have chen so when I
0: started Chen uh,
3: a year later it just that that one line stuck in my head and I thought okay I'll I'll call this Chen.
0: And you're 100% run by volunteers is that
3: right? Almost 100%. So I was a volunteer for 7 years but I went full time in July. So um you know, during the COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic I managed to gather enough support to be able to go full time. Wow, that's, I mean, incredible. How have you been affected by COVID-19? Our views have gone up by three times. But apart from that, we really haven't had any major changes because CHEN is a digital first organization. We've always worked online. Mm -hmm. Our volunteers, we have 400 volunteers from all across the world, about 20 countries. So, you know, nothing truly has changed for us in what we do The big difference is for everybody else. It seems like a lot more people want to work with us and understand the value of our work, want to learn from what we've been doing. And we've been able to capitalize on this interest to, you know, get people to embrace digital like more because
0: it's so critical. And you've had a million hits to your page. In fact, that number's probably gone up since I read that fact.
3: Yes, I think we have gone over a million
0: uh, page views. I think we're about 1.2 million now. That's incredible. Now you aim to reach and empower women and give them the right information to take control of their lives. How do you find that that works from country to country? I mean, each country must have different rights. You're in over 20 different countries. So that must be an incredible amount of work. It is,
3: but it's made easier by the fact that we have an incredibly diverse team. And that team is able to, you know, use their like, knowledge of their communities and put that across. And the way we work is we try not to put any specific information to, to do that might change very suddenly or often, like, like particular laws. We don't put that together for all countries. Instead, mm. we direct people to government websites for them or to local organizations. It's everything else around it that needs addressing. And that, that's the kind of gap we fill.
0: And it's so easy to use. I've been on the website. It's very accessible. Um, With a couple of clicks, you can find the information that you want. There's opportunity to chat to people if you're struggling yourself. Is that your speciality, the tech side of things? Is tech something that you've always been passionate about?
3: I've always been passionate about technology as an early adopter, but I never studied it. I never... It was something I did, you know, while uh, being at university and then just learned by myself through going to events and like conferences and courses. Mm -hmm. And and now we, you know, we're fortunate that we can do a lot more complex things because we have the resources to hire good developers. But also I, while I was a volunteer for Chen and doing Chen voluntarily, I had a full-time day job, which was in tech. So I've been working in tech since like I was at uni, since 2012. So I'm definitely like very much part of the tech sector.
0: What you've set up is remarkable. And you've been acknowledged recently for your work on the honours list. Yes, that was
3: uh, very unexpected and uh, very grateful, but also kind of strange because, you know, the medals that you get, it says BEM, which is British Empire Medal. And that's a product of the empire as a Pakistani, that, feels, that word feels strange and kind of, painful it would be nice if it was rebranded to
0: British like excellence medal or British something else with the e I think that's a very fair and valid point did you choose to accept in the end I had only a few days to make up my
3: mind and I decided to accept for my grandparents who would have been very proud and the fact that someone went through a lot of trouble to nominate me and the award comes to me but I stand in front of a huge team of volunteers and community so
0: um, I decided to accept it for that. Well, um, I-, I think you should be extremely proud, regardless of the wording of what your achievement demonstrates. What are your plans for the future?
3: So many more plans. Uh, it's, you know, there is a world of opportunities for Chen. And for me, I think we have done ex- excellent like services uh, in the last two years. And I'm really keen on Chen to expand the services because it's one of those areas where not a lot of uh, charities have the experience or the capacity to provide something online. And China has a hybrid model where a lot of our work is done with volunteers, but we also have contractors and staff members uh, increasingly now. So we've been working on mental health and mental well-being, and mm-hmm. I'd love to work uh, further on tech safety to make make sure people can sort of embrace the world, uh, you know, of of the internet and digital
0: devices without putting themselves at risk. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Hera. Thank you for talking about your culture and the work that you do. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Hera for a great interview. Remember, you can pre order a first edition copy of Secret Dishes from Around the World too from the shop on Bounceback Foods website. Go to www.bouncebackfood.co.uk forward slash shop to place your order. To find out more about the people featured on today's podcast, head to the blog on Bounceback Foods' website, or you'll find the episode notes. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to Share Your Secrets, a podcast by Bounce Back Foods CIC. I'm your host, Miriam Rendell, and I'll see you next week. This episode was sponsored by Sophia Carey, a freelance photographer and designer from London, who's currently based in Manchester. Sophia has worked with a range of clients across genres, including travel, events, e-commerce, live music, weddings, fashion and food. For more information, check out Sophia's Instagram at Sophia J Carey or visit her website www.sophiacarey.co.uk.